The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the mystic skeptic mind space. We're here with Raven and Layla, the organizers of the Herbal Synergy Conference. Please tell us how this idea came about and what has been your experience so far. My biggest question is how do you get big name people to support a new effort like this? Very excited to have Rosemary Glassstar and the other speakers this weekend. Well, sometimes you're just called upon by uh, your elders or the universe and then you figure out the in-betweens. This this energy conference uh, was started, the idea was cultivated rather, and Central America and in uh, Costa Rica in particular. One night over dinner with Rosemary and Jane, we were talking, and Jane was discussing with her where I was from, and she always wanted to come to the farm. And so she, in the midst of our meal, said very seriously to me, "You need to organize an herbal conference on the farm so I can go there." And so that's where the idea came. And from there, um, I've made some phone calls to some farm family and asked Layla to help me, and she's been my right hand and left hand all along the way. She's helped put this whole event together, and without her, it wouldn't have been possible. So he introduced me to the to this vision that Rosemary shared with um, with him in Costa Rica, and, uh, and I felt called to help. We combine our strengths and efforts into making it happen. Non-craftable events, we really felt strongly about it and about having it acting as a fundraiser for social movement and so we chose to help support two NGOs, Rise to Shine, that works with um, into implementing schools and educational programs in Haiti and with the Urban Sprouts Farm which has a vision of creating an eco-village in Atlanta and specifically right now into implementing, I mean, we're joining forces and trying to support them into implementing a ch- an after-school program in Atlanta. Uh, this is uh, what the fundraising, or not, fundraising is all about. And as far as the master teachers that you were uh, referring to, Raven and I have been registered into, I mean, we, we both took Jane's class, a Jane Herbal, Herbalism class, uh, that is based on Rosemary textbook, but she also adds a lot to it, and some of the teachers are part of the, this program, and we've been blessed and honored to meet them through that course. Then uh, Raven pursued into the second program that comes after it, and we got a chance to meet Kevin Spellman with uh, other teachers that he invited to come to the conference. Have you guys always been interested in nature and connecting with your surroundings, or is this or something that has been developing with time? And what draws you to herbalism as a way to um, learn about self-healing and being in touch with 
the physical realm that sometimes people who live in the city they kind of forget about or dismiss and are more interested in like medical or pharmaceutical ways of healing themselves. Speaking for myself, we come from very different backgrounds, Raven and I, but speaking for myself, I grew up in a smaller town, so I was already already connected with nature. I then moved to bigger cities, and I've, li and I've lived most of my life in metropolitan areas, uh, but as soon as I was a, as as soon as I was a teenager, I felt called to connect with nature and get to learn more about alternative ways to live and to um, live in a more harmonious way with our environment, respecting all the forces present in nature. And that interest grew along the years, and I recently chose to move away from the metropolitan area and get closer to nature and immerse myself in that environment, and this is where how we met, and so I hope to dedicate um, more of my coming years into learning and growing. And I was born here on the farm, and so my connection to this land it goes back to my birth, or maybe my father always was telling me what tree this was or that tree was, and he happened to be the head of the compost at that time, so I grew up as a little kid riding on the big compost flat flat um, wagon pulled behind the horses to big 40-foot compost piles. So probably where my interest first uh, arose in, in um, herbs and nature at large. Uh, I feel that, you know, medicine is, is, is what we eat and how we choose to think and how we choose to live our lives. And so herbs to me are, are, are good medicine and for food, for ailments, for rehabilitation of our, our earth, and so I feel that, you know, we misjudge them often and we call them weeds, and so learning about herbs helps to give us an idea of understanding of what these, quote, weeds that we fight against are and actually how to use them and make them our allies and, and actually call upon them and, and protect them also. So... I think that it's, it's it's broader and deeper than just, you know, making plant medicine out of, out of them. I happened to be exposed to a place where I got to meet really high-qualified teachers, and I tried to put it myself and, and, and around them as much as possible just so I can absorb as much as possible. And in that, we've developed a, a relationship, a friendship, and so if... Uh, been kind enough to support me in, in, in the mission that was set forth by, you know, a higher source than our, our, all of us, the synergy, because it's mutually benefiting. So uh, what is seeking you is often what you're seeking, you know, and sometimes what you're seeking is seeking you, and so sometimes it just manifests before us, and it's up to us to choose to make the choices whether we choose to work with them or, or not. So in this situation, I was asked by a grandmother and tried to figure out any means possible to help a vision blossom and create this movement of information because information is the most important thing I feel to life and Love is information, in my opinion. So 
I, I would like to be a part of helping to share information exchange. So that's one of the reasons I took it seriously to help try and create this vision. Wonderful. Where do we go from here after this very successful conference, having wonderful people coming from Atlanta, Nashville, other places to support your efforts? Are we planning to do this every year, or is it a biannual event? Are you thinking about reaching out to other venues and, and making it available to different regions of the country, or even Costa Rica? Uh, what are your other visions for, for this conference? Well, we're looking at it as an annual event, as, far, as of today. Vision we had was to have it as a caravan and moving um, in the country, but I guess this is going to be discussed and <laughs> and we will gather our thoughts around around this idea and we are very very open to anybody that would like to come join us into creating official NGO and coming up with a plan for the coming years. This this is our first time uh, creating and organizing such a gathering. And it's amazing uh, how we were all able to work synergistically into manifesting it and making it happen. Um, and so it's important for us to discuss it with everybody involved and see how everybody looks at it for the future. Um, I don't think that this is only on us. We are just channels. and just bringing this uh, as a platform for sharing knowledge and spreading uh, knowledge. So I think it would be a communal decision and not, not just uh, us taking this, this decision for the coming years. So it's still in the making. <laughs> and if anybody wants to inqu uh, put their feedback into us, you know, uh, info at the HSC, feel free to email us and we can, uh, I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts and comments. That was my next question. Uh, the show is, is broadcast here in Summertown and the farm, but we also broadcast in Nashville on Radio Free Nashville. So for them to get a hold of you, if you can tell us the website again, uh, the show is also online on SoundCloud. So it spells out as the letters from Herbal Synergy Conference. Absolutely. The website is dhse.org. Uh, and the email address is info at dhse.org. Well, and it's great to see that there's a, a big group of people from Nashville who are interested in herbalism. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to share, um, future people that you're thinking about bringing to the conference or other things? Like, I, I know uh, for people that are listening to the show, they get to hear the interviews with different amazing people who came. But what else was going on in the last couple of days? You had performances. You had uh, a fire with drums. What else did you have for people who are interested in be being here for the whole thing as Kind of like a retreat. We also had uh, yoga classes every morning, um, and we want to incorporate more mindfulness practices. Um, we want to promote an entire lifestyle uh, choice, and so anything that can be implemented into having a more balanced and harmonious lifestyle that brings us to our center within ourselves to be able to work in a harmony with our environment. So we are. We are looking into implementing all sorts of aspects to a holistic lifestyle, balancing, balancing holistic lifestyle. So we're looking into mind-body practices, arts, um, 
ceremonial gatherings uh, along with lectures and hands-on workshops, field experiences. Um, yes. It, we did create a garden as one of the things was um, made here at the Unity Center. We uh, had, a, had a garden put in and some medicine-making workshops. The sky is limitless. As far as other teachers, I have a whole host of people I would love to bring, and we'll just see how people's times and schedules and things play out. Layla has amazing contacts and people that she knows. And so we, can... we are also interested in looking into ethnobotany, possibly in the future, and incorporating that into the conferences and being part of this revolution that we are all trying to create and working together, uh, leading and implementing a sustainable project such as the herb, herb garden that we implemented here is also crucial for us and regardless of us coming back here or going elsewhere, this is something that we always want to incorporate, right? Leaving, leaving some, uh, leaving a yeah, leaving something behind, yeah, planting something or a seed of some kind that will grow for the future generations. Um, I mean, some of our ideas potentially are, you know, replanting uh, medicinal herbs that have uh, grown here in the past but are have been either, um, t- you know, uprooted and taken to the stores for over-harvested or... Uh, different habitat destruction that's occurred along the way that is that has uh, made lots of species um, vulnerable to disease and, and those things so putting putting back into the woods is, and, and, and putting our emphasis on growing and healing what we do have and working with what we have and understanding what we have and not just just extracting from what we have because that's a big part of the mission is is uh, the medicine but once you know the medicine and you can use the medicine, then we have to be, uh, we have to grow our awareness to not over harvest the medicines and actually work in a, in a way that's, that's uh, going to not destroy our ecosystems. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, really appreciate your time. And we definitely want to stay in touch with you guys as the next conference gets along and maybe you can call you and get an update on new speakers that are coming and we want to support events here at the farm that are bringing people together so again thank you and keep the good work going and keep us updated on what's going on thank you absolutely thank you we really appreciate your time and the space you hold here at the farm the farm radio station it's uh, crucial and this week's show our guest is rosemary gladstar she's a pioneer in the herbal movement and has been called the godmother of american herbalism she began over 35 years ago developing herbal formulas in the herb shop Rosemary's Garden in Sonoma County, California. She's the founder of the California School of Herbal Studies, the oldest running herb school in the United States, author of the Science and Art of Herbalism Home Study Course, and is the organizer of the International Herb Symposium and the New England Women's Herbal Conference held annually in New Hampshire. Rosemary lives and works from her home, uh, Sage Mountain Herbal Retreat Center, a 500-acre botanical preserve in central Vermont. Let's go back from the beginning. We have people that don't know much about herbalism listening to our show or people who are experts. So tell us how you became interested in herbalism and a little bit about the history behind this movement. Well, I was very fortunate. Um, In the old way, I was trained by my grandmother, actually. She was a survivor of the Armenian Genocide. When she came to this country, I think she felt it was both a religious duty as well as something very practical. 
to teach her grandchildren. It wasn't like I was signaled out, you know, I would have, that would have been great, but she would just take all of us and take us out to the garden. And as she was weeding, she would tell us how these plants were used and how they were used for food and medicine. And also um, how they had helped her save her life because she, when they were in the desert and they were being marched, my grandmother knew what to eat. And when there was illness, my grandmother knew how to treat that. So she was really an herbalist in the old sense of the way where people really knew about plants. So, you know, we go back a hundred years ago, not so long in human history, really in every community and oftentimes in every family, there were people who knew about plants because it was the common remedy. It was a common, you know, health um, and medicine that people used. So my grandmother trained us kind of in that old folkloric method and again, in a rather traditional manner, there's oftentimes one person in a family or a community that's really drawn to plants and I just tumbled into that world. I mean, from a really young age, I felt aligned with the plants and so it sort of became my life passion. By the time I was in seventh and eighth grade, I was doing studies of the medicinal plants of Sonoma County where I grew up and the Native American uses of those plants and when I was in my early 20s, I was actually 20, 1972, so I was about 22 years old, I opened a little herb store called Rosemary's Garden in the town where I was born and raised. That, that store, by the way, is still there. I now live in Vermont, but the store has been an institution in Northern California for years. And it kind of, I have to say, I felt more like the plants were using me. I, I wasn't ever like I thought, oh, I'm going to open up an herb school or I'm going to start products or conferences. It was more like there was a need, and if I could be of service and help people, I wanted to. So, And the, the school was started in part because there were no schools. Their educational um, educational aspect of herbalism had, the last school had been closed in 1940 in the United States, and there was really hardly anybody teaching it. So it was kind of a need. People were saying, oh, we want to learn about herbs, we want to know about herbs. And I really have to say I knew very little. I was knew some from my grandmother and from the home studies that I'd done and being out in the wilderness, but I certainly didn't know as much as there is to know today, you know, with the amount of information that's out there. But, you know, I always felt teaching was just you share what you know and then you learn from other people. And so I was in, I started inviting people that I wanted to study with, the elders and other herbalists that were my age that were, you know, I think on the same path and in the same calling. So it kind of just happens, you know. Really, I think more than anything just like the organic food movement that started at that time, the return that back to the earth movement, that, that desire to have things be simpler again, herbal healing, herbal medicine was part of that. And I just, that was my banner. I picked that up and ran with it because I feel like the plants, that I feel like that was the message from the plant. You know, let's go forth and do it. <laughs> and it's been, I've stayed, I've been doing it for over 40 years now because it's filled me. It's such a passion. I think also because I love plants with all my heart. You know, they fill me up as medicine in the deepest way. Like they, you know, they heal my body, but my spirit and my soul, they keep me hopeful. I also love the people that love plants. You know, I feel that people that are called to the earth and who are farming and who are working with plant medicine, they just have a hope and a vitality and a vivaciousness about them that keeps me very hopeful for the planet. So there's a, per- a lot of personal agendas in there for me as well. Um, along with that feeling that I'm doing a good service for the planet. Wonderful. Is there a difference between herbal medicine and herbalism? And how does an herbalist get trained? And- That's a really good question. So, you know, there's no formal definition of what an herbalist is. And especially in the United States, we have a very eclectic system of healing. I, I really love our Western tradition because it's actually very encompassing of many different traditions. So 
we it's not like people here just have to practice Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine or the wise woman tradition. You know, we, um, in American herbalism, that system embraces the best of many systems. So there's many ways of, of being and practicing as an herbalism. But when when we think of herbal medicine, or when I think of herbalists or herbalism, I'm really thinking of people who use, who love and use plants. It doesn't really have to specify that it's for medicinal purposes. Because really, when you try to define medicine, what is medicine? A walk in a garden can be medicine. Uh, herb tea or good food can be medicine, you know, as well as allopathic drugs and surgery and all of that. So the very definition of medicine itself is very large. So when I think about herbalism, I think of it really as a way of living more than a system of medicine. I think I think of it as like there are many different ways that people can practice herbalism as a healing art. So some people are farmers. Like when you look at organic farmers that are tilling the soil and putting good good nourishment, nutrients, and minerals back into that soil, they're doing some of the most prominent and important healing work right now, don't you think? Yeah, so that's healing work. Farming. Farming can be healing. And also people who work one-on-one with people, that's the way we normally think of you know, medicine and herbalism. But it's a much bigger thing. People who make medicine, they can be making really excellent medicine and maybe not even being the ones that are administering it. So when I think of herbalism, that word to me is more broad. It really means people who love and use plants. And it can be one-on-one, it can be for their family, it can be in a clinical practice. So it's a very broad definition to me. And I actually am very purposeful about not wanting that term to be just usurped and used for people who practice medicine in the way that we think of it. You know, they're sitting in an office or a practice and they're prescribing herbs or, you know, whatever it is that they are to help people heal physical ailments. I want to see that term be broad because because when we look at it in a broad way, what it means that this tradition that's ancient, that is all around the world, that unites us actually, is one of the things that we share in common with communities, with humanity around the world. It means it keeps it so that it's a more broad term that if you work with plants and you love plants, you can call yourself an herbalist. It doesn't become something elitist. I don't want to see that happen with our American system of healing. And then there was another part of that question, but I forgot what it was. Well, it's just how do you become an herbalist? Oh, that's right. So the educational. So in the traditional cultures, how you became an herbalist is you really were chosen actually by your grandparents or by your community healers, and they trained you. And that training included the way many traditional crafts and arts. It was more of a training, a one-on-one, an apprenticeship. That doesn't happen much anymore because the grandparents forgot the healing arts, and they they also were taught that it wasn't important, and herbalism really died and went underground really from around the 1940s till the 1960s. So the more the more modern way of teaching is we have schools and classes. And because there's so many different ways that people can practice, if you want to be a clinical practitioner or work with a doctor or with a homeopath or with a naturopath, then generally you're going to go to a school that gives you some kind of um, certificate or accreditation that says that you've passed a class. So there's that kind of training that happens um, when somebody wants to practice herbalism as a one-on-one healing art. But there's also all the other ways where people want to be family herbalists. They want to be, which I think is the, really actually one of the most noble, where you're actually learning plants, excuse me, where you're learning plants to really bring them home and make your own family healthier, yourself healthier, and maybe your community. And that's what we call family herbalism or 
our community herbalism, village herbalism. And it's the old model. It's a traditional model where you train with an elder in your culture, in your community, excuse me, and then you you offered what you knew to other people. Sometimes you had products that you were able to give or sell to them. And sometimes you were also, you know, did the kind of work that you knew how to do, but you were also a very good reference. So when people needed the medical profession or a more professional herbalist or one who worked more with serious illnesses, that was also available. So there's very many different levels of, of studying and training in our country today. Um, and again, I don't want to see any of them be invalid. I think the traditional method of training as an apprentice is a really beautiful model for something that, like herbalism, is such a healing art. But I also am very happy to see some of these wonderful schools that are being developed that um, that train people, you know, to be able to help others as in more serious health, who have more serious health issues. So there's a need for it all, you know, and, and we do have very many levels of um, training that happen. We also have really, I would say, there's some wonderful online courses and home study courses that really, none of them are sophisticated enough to teach people how to be clinical practitioners. So when you see a course that's saying, you know, you can graduate and open a practice, I would question that. But all of them are good steps in learning, you know, herbalism as a tradition. And I might add with that a very interesting fact for many people in our country is we're one of the very few places in the world where it's actually illegal to practice herbal medicine or any medicine that the government hasn't deemed is safe for us. It's one of, it's a human right that all humans should have the right to determine the choice of medicine that they want, the kind of medicine that they want. It does it should not be government approved. Our government has a role in making sure that things are safe for us, but we should be educated enough to know that if we want homeopathy or herbalism or faith healing, that we have the right. It's a, it's a citizen's right. And in fact, our founding fathers, Benjamin Rush, who is one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, he was a medical doctor. He really argued to put freedom rights in the Constitution. Um, he felt that if it wasn't put in, that we would actually be ruled like a, like a tyrannical society where the government was making choices about what and what we chose to use in our body. And in a sense, that is, is what happened. Um, you know, people, they don't realize it in this country because they don't have the freedom to choose. But uh, health freedom is not a right of American citizens. And I think, I really feel that should be changed. You know, I feel that uh, it's a human right. It's not, a, it's not something the government should be able to tell you whether or not you want to go to a herbalist or a medical doctor. That should be your choice, don't you think? Tell us about research that supports herbal medicine and does it matter if it can be proven scientifically that it helps, or is it more of a belief system where we know that through anecdotes of people uh, feeling better or being cured, that's all that we need? So there is a lot of research being done and has been done since about the 1940s. Very little in the United States. We have some, but most of the research is coming from Europe. Germany does a lot, Switzerland, England. Um, a lot of it comes from uh, Japan and China. So there is a significant amount of research that backs many of the herbs that are used. And there's some really good peer review articles that people are interested in the scientific research, which I actually do find very interesting, um, is through the uh, American Botanical Council and also um, Herbalgram, which is a very prestigious magazine that um, pre presents a lot of these, the more scientific documents on the, on the medicinal 
whether these plants work or not. But I also want to say that I think empirical evidence, and empirical evidence is evidence of hundreds of years of abuse on humans um, and determining if a plant's safe, how it works, by these sometimes really literally thousands of people that have been using the plant. I think that's actually as valid and perhaps in the long run more valid. Oftentimes the problem with the scientific studies is that um, they're done on single isolates, single compounds. Sometimes the, the compound that might be determined to be the most active ingredient, but quite honestly in plants, there are thousands, sometimes more than thousands of active ingredients. And we don't really have even the ability to determine what those active ingredients are. So we might find one or two markers uh, markers being the what what it might be thought by the scientific studies to be the most active ingredient. So oftentimes you'll read within a few months and sometimes within a few years, oops, there was a mistake and it's not that. Hyperism is a really good example of that. If you followed that research over 10 years, there were times when hyperism was considered to be the active ingredient in St. John's Wort and times when it was considered not to be the active ingredient. Sometimes the scientific research would say we don't really know what it is. And yet still today, the marker is hypericin and the standardized tinctures are, are done to that. So it's, you know, science is a young science. <laughs> and, and plant science is ancient, actually, when you look at how people have been using plants for centuries. And oftentimes we're using them for the same purposes and having success with them. So... I think we need both. I think the scientific research is very validating oftentimes, but I do think people have to be mindful, especially when you're reading negative, negative things, because oftentimes you'll see a plant that's been considered perfectly safe for hundreds of years, and all of a sudden we're seeing it's not safe or it's not effective. And that's, if you look at the research, the research is done on a single isolate. So when herbalists are using plants, they're most often using whole plants. The plants can be prepared, but we're not taking, we can't, we don't have the, um, the solvents that are necessary to extract a single isolate. And we don't want to, we want to use the whole plant the way that they have been used. So when you take a single isolate, you actually go from using plants, at what we would call herbalism, into allopathic or drug-like medicine. And that's really how drugs evolved in the first place. So we're kind of making a full, you know, making that circle again, eating our tail. So uh, I do, so just to sum that up, I think the research is there. There's some incredibly validating research, um, but also what has to be very mindful of the research. Is it done on a single plant? How many people has it been done on? Empirical evidence can mean it's been done on whole cultures for hundreds of years. A lot of times the scientific research might be a very small study group. It could be 15 or 20 in a short, short period of time. Um, and then also who's funding the research, and everybody knows that you have to be very mindful, both of the pros and cons of that. Like, you know, if you want to prove that something works or you don't, you almost always can. If you do the research in a certain way, you can either prove or disprove it. So, yeah. So I was talking to one of the attendees of the, the conference, and she was saying that you know, pharmaceuticals, they, they might have a, a healing element from a plant there, but the coloring they use, the way it was processed, all that stuff might come from other chemicals that are not beneficial. So would you say that that would be the greatest difference between herbal medicine and regular medicine, that it is more natural or, or straight from the ground to you instead of going through all these other processes and having oil-based chemicals and things that are not beneficial to our bodies? Well, I think that's a really good point, but I would, I would like to point out, first of all, that they're entirely different systems. 
like oftentimes people try to overlap herbalism and allopathic medicine, you'll fit them into the, but they're entirely two different systems of healing and they both have really important places. So I would say even with the, the negatives and the positives of both, they both are very important. So we have no system of healing that I know of on this planet that can be so life-saving for, uh, you know, when people have been severely injured with gunshot wounds or really bad accidents or, you know, third-degree burns on their bodies. There's really far fewer systems of healing that have the success rate as modern allopathic medicine does, where for chronic long-term illnesses, for prevention, for building health, for wellness, you know, herbalism is an incredible system of healing. And it also can work for crises, but um, that's really the place where, where allopathic medicine shines. So that's and another, so we would say another big difference is, is that herbs actually embody living essence. They're like, when you take whole plants, we were talking about this a moment ago, they comprise thousands of chemical constituents. We've only barely begun to understand how those plants interact in our bodies. But we do know over hundreds of years of empirical use that these plants have profound effects, not just on our physiological bodies, often on our emotions, on our well you know, on our on our uh, mental well-being. So they impact us the way relationships do. So it's not just about one thing. And this that is to, this to me is the main difference with chemical medicine. So you might take a plant that you read about is really good for the lungs or good for the heart, but that plant is going to not just go to your heart or your lungs or your head or your feet or whatever it's been indicated for. It's going to have a relationship. And, um, of course, depending on the herb, it's hopefully going to have a supportive relationship on your entire body. And that relationship has been, this may sound a little esoteric, I can maybe explain it in a different terms, but um, it's going to have a, a relationship that's being that's been established for hundreds of years. In other words, it's been evolving. We've been evolving with plants since humans have been on this planet. So, yeah, so there's that aspect of it. Allopathic medicine is generally single-minded. You know, it's like the magic bullet. That's what it was designed to. So if you have a migraine, that silver bullet is going to go in there, and it's going to do something usually very strong to try to change that. If you have pain in your body, you know, you take a painkiller, and that's it's a single agenda. And if it's going to work, it's going to be really strong. And so it's not trying to work with your whole body. It's got an, it's got a single-minded agenda. It's designed for that. Um, and so it's not going to embrace and support your whole life form. And that's, to me, the really big difference. And, you know, one time a doctor, um, a very wise doctor, I thought, said, summed it up like in this way. They said, you know, the side effects that they talk about with drugs are not side effects at all. They're the effects of the drugs. Because when I thought about that, I thought, well, the side effects of herbs mostly are they make you feel better, you know, in a whole body way. For those who are not familiar with the different types of things you can do with plants, can you explain some stuff like hot or cold infusions, doshas, tea and milk decoctions, things like that that some of us might not be familiar with? Well, right, and I'll keep it very simple, you know, but like it's just like people have been cooking up hundreds of recipes around the world for, you know, hundreds of years. It's the same with herbalism, you know. There's so many incredible ways of processing herbs and so many ways that people can take herbs so that people who don't like tinctures, which are usually very concentrated medicinal preparations. You can have teas, you can take syrups. So there's a multitude of ways that I want to say that cultures around the world have developed for preparing herbs for internal use and external use. So in our country, some of the simplest ways are 
teas, which we have infusions, which are done with the leaves and the more delicate parts of the plants. We have decoctions, which are done with roots and the more tenacious plant parts that are harder to get the vitamins and minerals and constituents out. So, and teas to me are one of the most virtuous ways of taking plant medicine. It's not one of the more powerful or concentrated ways, but we don't always need our medicine to be concentrated and potent in order to work in our bodies. I mean, that's one of the illusions of modern medicine. Modern medicine, that silver bullet has to be extremely concentrated and potent and often have really bad side effects in order to work. So we tend to think of medicine, the stronger, the better. But that isn't true. You think about how we get soil health, how we get body health is often a little bit longer term, a little bit more nourishing, a little bit more soothing, you know, than so teas are really good, and I and I have been an advocate of teas since the very beginning of my practice. And in fact, I've started a couple tea companies, which I'm no longer, you know, I don't have a, a physical interest in anymore or financial interest in, but I'm very proud of a almost traditional medicinal tea company, which is probably the largest uh, medicinal tea country in tea company in this country. And the reason I'm so proud of it is because it brought teas medicinal teas in particular back to the American public. Like, yes, you could drink a tea for your sore throat, etc. So teas are, they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. And then we have liquid extracts, which are tinctures. And they are often, most often done with an alcohol base because alcohol extracts most of the chemical constituents of plants. People often use vinegar. Vinegar isn't as potent, but it is more nutritive and it's a tonic and it's actually very good for people. And then also another solvent, which is glycerin. So there's different way, different solvents that are used for extracting the plant parts. Um, and I would say none of them are necessarily bad or good. They're all used, you know, they all have people who use them for different purposes. But tinctures, I would say their value is they're concentrated, they're ready-made, and they go into your bloodstream very quickly. So they're, to me, they're most especially useful for acute situations, like a flu is coming on. So you see people whip out their echinacea tincture, right? Or you're getting a headache, or you have a gastric upset stomach, um, or you're going to eat a meal and you're, you have sensitivities in your stomach, so you take a, uh, a bitter, and they're usually a bitter tonic is usually in a, a tincture form. So concentrated, ready-made, go into your bloodstream really quickly. Those are the advantages of tinctures. They're probably the most popular way that herbs are sold as medicine in our country today. And then, of course, we have capsules, which is the way the modern world likes to think of their medicine. So, again, an interesting thing to me about the disempowerment of medicine in our country where, you know, really with the advent of modern medicine, people just kind of gave up their power about self-choice, about, you know, being able to ask questions that they wanted, being able to look at options and choose. That was just something they gave up. And I don't blame anybody for that except ourselves. You know, when we say, oh, you know, we don't, you know, the doctor is like God and, you know, we're afraid to ask. I just said it's, that's of our problem, not theirs. They're doing the best that they can. So I think it's really important not to blame people, but to take so Our health is our self-responsibility. Making choices is our responsibility. So um, so then there's so there's the capsules. I got a little off on that subject there. But capsules is the way that people today tend to think of medicine. And to me, it sort of embraces modern medicine. You just swallow it down. You're not really thinking what you're taking. You don't taste anything. It's just out of sight, out of mind. And then it does something really strong in the body. There's nothing wrong with capsules today. I mean, I used to advocate put capsules on the very bottom of the list. It had more to do with the quality of the capsules, the 
quality of herbs were not so good in them. You know, they were using very poor, poor quality. But that has changed a lot. As herbalism has become more popular in this country, we see uh, much more recognition of good quality products. And so I just, I think with the capsules, they work really well for certain people. They don't want to be involved in their medicine making. You know, they don't want to make tea or take tincture. So capsules are fine. But I, I personally think that the more you can engage people with their healing process, it can be as simple as like, you know, drinking tea, eating well, um, instead of taking capsules to take, you know, to take it as a tincture. It, it, it involves people in that process of self-wellness. And I think that that's an important empowering position. But not everybody feels that way, and so take your capsules. And then we have topical applications. Like there were famous doctors who were really well-known. They were medical. Uh, one guy, Dr. Marie Mazagay, who was a French doctor, very well-known in France. I think he's passed away now. But he used all of his herbal remedies. They were foot baths and hand baths. So he used infusions, you know, that you soak people's hands in foot baths. And he was renowned for his healing practices. Of course, he might have been, you know, had superpowers. Some people, like doctors and nurses and herbalists, you know, they just, it's, you know, it's so genetically imprinted in them that they just, you know, look at you and smile and you feel better. And so he could have had that power, certain. But, but hand and foot baths are old-fashioned ways that herbs were uh, administered. And also women today use, um, again, it's an old, old practice, forgotten in our country, but in South America and Central America, it's very well known, are vaginal steams. So it's a way of, you know, you like make a, a steam and instead of soaking, you know, putting your head over it and breathing those herbal, aromatic herbal essences in through your nose, you're actually breathing them in your, through your vagina and there's this wonderful healing that takes place. So a lot of women, um, uh, there really is a big movement in this country and a lot of women who have menstrual problems and, you know, fertility problems are actually using herbal steams. Plus it feels really good. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, and then there's top, There's also topical applications like salves, which are, you know, like ointments and lotions. People are pretty familiar with that, that you put on burns and um, owies, bee stings, and, and then poultices and fomentation. So I think that, and they're, they're compresses. They're like the herbs actually ground up and applied topically and the, allows the healing the, through the skin, which our skin is our largest organ of elimination and assimilation. So in truth, everything we do put on our skin, um, especially if it's water-based, is absorbed by the skin. Sometimes with oil, not so much because the oil molecules are quite large and they don't really penetrate the dermal layer. Water penetrates the dermal layer. So, yeah, we have a wide spectrum of herbs. And, you know, I always say you always want to give the herbal remedy in the form that somebody's going to take. So if you have children, syrups are great. If you have older people, syrups are great because older people usually don't like bitters. They like sweet, just like children, because it gives them quick energy. Um, but So there's a wide spectrum of preparations. Every herbalist is trained to know when the best time to give each one is, but I always say whichever way the person's going to take it. Otherwise, you're going to go visit them a year from now and you're going to see all the teas or capsules or whatever it is sitting on their shelf and so the best remedy in the world is not going to work for a person unless you give it to them in the way that they'll take. Tell us about this herbal walk you did here at the farm. Oh. How many things were you able to find and what was the experience like for the participants? 
Well, you'd have to ask the participants, but for those of us who were teaching that, it was a great time. My good friend Jane Bothwell, who's one of my herbal friends from California, and I were scheduled to give this walk. We were a little bit worried. We're both very, very adept at plant identification, but we come from entirely different habitats. I come from northern New England, from a rocky mountain, and I know my Vermont plants pretty well, and Jane comes from northern California. So we were both looking at each other going, uh, okay. What are we going to do? And it's July here, so a lot of the early weeds are, like, you know, dried up. And so some of those common weedy plants, which we know we find anywhere, like plantain and dandelion, etc., but they would be a little bit dried up and not so visibly beautiful for people. So we invited a couple of the locals here that grew up on the farm to come with us, and that made a perfect walk. And we also did a little trick where we invited the participants to, each time we saw a plant, we would... that. Um, was a medicinal plant. We invited the participants to share about it. So Jane and I got to learn a whole lot while everybody else had a chance to share and learn as well. So it was a very wonderful way to do an herb walk. And we saw, I would say all told, um, maybe about 30 plants. We did quite a long walk. So we, you know, really you could do 30 plants and not walk 10 feet, really. Um, Like when you stand in a meadow and you look down, you'll start, there's yarrow, there's plantain, there's the hopweed, there's uh, dandelion, you know, there's in this field, there's the um, passion flowers and the wild thistles and wild mallows, you know, it's so much, it's so rich. It's what, something I would just say, it's something that humans have always been taught is to know the local plants, the weedy plants and the native plants. And to have lost that skill is very tragic, you know, so to see so many young people interested in it again, as well as older people, is really beautiful because it's about, it's about, practicality, you know, it's about um, a spiritual relationship, it's about knowing your neighbors, and a lot of these plants are incredibly medicinal and delicious, and some of them, which ones that we think of, uh, maybe even native or weedy, actually were brought here. They were selectively brought over here by our elders, by our ancestors, because they were their prime food and medicine. They were, they played a very valuable part in their Materia Medica. Are you involved in any advocacy? I know you mentioned that the U.S. is very regulated regarding uh, medicinal herbs. Are you involved in advocacy both here and internationally about the rights of patients to have access to these items or for people to be practitioners of herbal medicine or being herbalists? And what is uh, your relationship to people from other countries and, and the type of use they have for herbs different parts of the world? Well, I'll start with that because that's a very simple question and, um, and something I'm really very proud of with American herbalism. So I think I did mention this earlier. American herbalism is a very eclectic system of healing. We have a very unique system of healing of any place I've traveled in the world. And, um, and I think a part why that is is because our tradition, our traditions um, went deeply underground from really the early 1900s to around 1960. Um, and... There, it wasn't that you didn't find people that practiced, but it was usually in very poor communities or very uh, ethnic communities, like deep in the city. If you had a group of Italians or a group of Armenians or you know Spanish people, they would still be practicing their medicine. But in general, and also in very poor rural areas, you know, it wasn't a choice. If they, if people in these poor rural areas had healthcare available to them, they would have chosen. It was just that that's what they had. But generally, we'd say throughout America, North America, herbalism was considered to be quaint, old-fashioned, and that it didn't work, um, and that we had a new system of healing that would heal everything. So that was pretty much 
what was thought of it. And it was during that time, people did not practice herbal medicine. And so in the 60s, when people started to wake up again, first of all, I think the waking up happened because allopathic or modern medicine, which is based on pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical industry, why we all admit it does amazing things. It also doesn't cure everything. We don't have one system of medicine that does. It also has terrible side effects, not only on the physical body, but also on ecology. It's considered to be one of the worst ecological damaging systems in the world for polluting environment. Um, and so, you know, it, there's things about it that we need to clean up about it. And so herbal medicine, as part of the Back to the Land movement, as part of, as part of our, this organic food movement, started to surface again. And when it did, it came through young people. And I think that's part of why the eclecticness it was, and it didn't come from authorities telling us it had to be done this way, or from a, a profession that said, you know, you have to be, you have to get your degree and you can't practice. In this country, it came from the ground up in a very organic, grassroots way. And I really feel that was a saving grace of American herbalism. And the reason that it's as eclectic as it is today, it's yummy and delicious in eclecticism and biodiversity. So it's the best of all worlds, and it's not like people go, oh, if you're an Ayurvedic practitioner, you must know a lot more than the traditional Chinese practitioner or my local granny herbalist over there. It really, we have a lot of choices to the type of herbalist healers that we have available to us. So, um, so I would like to say there is a real welcoming of culture and tradition, and even more so by the younger people who are following in our footsteps. Like I would say that they're bringing even greater diversity as far as a recognition of different genders and, you know, that really wasn't part of our dialogue when I was practicing. But there is a concern about being um, not only race racially equal, which I feel was part of our consciousness, but also um, to welcome various types of people into the healing movement. And so I love that. It's... You know, I don't have the voice for it, but I support it. Uh, and I support the young people who do have that voice. So, um, yeah, and then as, let's see, the rest of that was. Can you <laughs> Advocacy. Is there, like, oh, um, yeah. ways to help practitioners and patients have access to yeah. these things and to actually challenge the, the big pharmaceuticals or the government to be more open about Yes, absolutely, and it is a big fight because the pharmaceutical industry practically owns this country. If we had any idea about the amount of lobbying money that goes behind making sure that the pharmaceutical companies remain in control of our Senate and all of our governors and all of this stuff, it would be it would be unbelievable to us. We would be outraged about it. But that's really actually the truth. Um, so there, and and the other thing that Americans don't realize is we do not have freedom of health care. I mean, even when it comes to your death, the fact that we have to fight to have rights about how we want to die, is it's absurd. You know, your your body is your responsibility and your God's, you know, whoever it is that you worship as your greater consciousness. And so, um, and the same with giving birth, you know, that we have people have to fight so hard to establish a home birth movement when people around the world for millions of years have been having very healthy babies home. Anyway, so that's a whole other topic. But today we do have a health freedom movement, and I really think it is the way to go. It's a state-by-state -state movement. It's led by the National Health Freedom Coalition. I feel anybody who's interested in healthcare and in herbalism and in natural systems of healing should be involved in the National Health Freedom Movement so you can get information about it by going to 
www.nationalhealthfreedomcoalition.com. Um, it's a state-by-state state, uh, movement to bring um, freedom of health care. Um, it, it really protects the consumer. It's about you as a right as a citizen to choose the kind of health care you want. A byproduct of that is protecting unlicensed practitioners and also licensed practitioners like a doctor or a nurse who might want to practice something that's outside the realm of what they were trained in medical school. For, so for just as an example of that, if you're a medical doctor, using some of the alternative methods of cancer, cancer healing, cancer um, treatments that have been approved in other countries but not in this country, you would be allowed to use so long as there was proof of no harm. That's always part of the statement of these national health freedom movements. So there has been up to date nine states that have passed laws that have passed these. They're called safe. Uh, they're called safe harder freedom exemption laws that protect protect the citizens and unlicensed practitioners. Um, and they're very intelligent. You know, they're done by lawyers and they're done by uh, the medical profession. They're all involved. You really need enough very uh, diverse group of people to pass these laws because they have to be passed by the state. But to this date, nine states have passed them and there's 19 states pending. And I think I just read recently that they've actually been introduced into 25 states. The two, I've always liked to acknowledge the two founding women who founded this uh, these organizations. It's the National Health Freedom Coalition and the National Health Freedom Action Coalition. And that's the lobbying aspect. So they're separate. One's a nonprofit educational, and one's an action organization that works out of works through Washington. Um, but it's a woman named Diane Miller and Jerry Johnson who've just done tremendous work. It's a big organization. They have a National Health Freedom um, Congress every year, where people from all over the world come to talk about health freedom and how it has to be a basic human right. So I do. I think it's necessary. You know, I think it's. I think two things. One is that I think it's important that we be involved with these for not only our own sakes, but our children's sakes. And I think right now it's very important to be involved with good projects like this, that you actually can make a difference, you actually can see the laws being changed. Because we get so much bad information, we forget about all the good that's going on right now. So being active in you know, plant preservation and plant ecology and health freedom rights we are making changes. We are making a difference. And so it's a really good thing to plug into. You know, we can change this in a better way. It's one of those things we really can change. When we change these things, we start to change everything in the world. Last question. So what are your recommendations for young people or, or people who are new to herbalism? How can they get plugged in? How can they learn? How can they grow? And how can they heal themselves through uh, herbs mm -hmm. and, and what's available out there? Well, yeah, you know, I think I have to say I look to the young people today because I think that they are the, they just hold so much knowledge and information, uh, and they just come through, it seems, on a, such a higher vibration, you know, really, it's amazing to me. And there are so many young people who have been drawn into the field of herbal healing, of herbalism. Um, yeah, it's it's really like a resurgence or a renaissance, right? I see them like seed balls, really, you know, they just pick it up and they're moving it forward. So I would say this, that there there's a tremendous amount of information available to them. But they have to be selective between information and knowledge. They're very different things. You can have too much information. Um, you can actually have so much information that you don't know how to put it into practice, that it actually can paralyze you. 
And herbalism is, is not just information. You do have to be informed and educated. I think that's really true. But you really have to know those plants in your soul. And one of the things that I was taught at a very young age by one of my teachers, a man named Dr. Swabel Brooks, who was a naturopath, he used to say, I heard him say this so many times, um, he would say, I'd rather be the type of herbalist that knows 40 uses of one herb than the herbalist who knows 40 uses of, whoops, I'd rather be the type of herbalist who knows 40 uses of one herb than the herbalist who knows one use of 40 herbs. So it's really knowing a few of your plants and knowing them deeply. You become allies with them. And I would really, really suggest that um, that people explore the deeper relationships because that, to me, is what the plants have to offer us more than anything. Is Right now, I think the biggest sickness we have on this planet is disconnection from our relationships. It's not only family relationships or community relationships, our relationships with our neighbors, but it's also relationship with the environment around us, with the plants around us. It's created a loneliness, an illness in the spirit of people so that people do things that are horrendous with no consciousness, and it's because they're disconnected from the very thing that makes us humanity, which is our interconnectedness. It's really the real internet that connects us with all of life. So it's the, the, this younger generation has the potential and the possibility of permeating into that in a very, very deep level, so long as they're not, you know, waylaid by the information, too much head stuff and not enough heart stuff, and that would be the one thing I would say. If they can find elders to study with, um, it's always very important to do that. The elders are always dying off and there's new elders coming, but it's always to find your elders, um, both the elders in the woods, the old plants, but also your elder teachers. Um, yeah, yeah. They're doing good. Our younger generation is doing good. They just can't lose hope. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, and thank you for being there for people who are new to herbalism and educating others. Uh, I know people were very excited to be here to see you in person. And like I shared with you before the the show, um, the young ladies from uh, Rising Appalachia were really uh, raving about you. How did you come across them? Oh, well, you know, they carry an energy about them that's irresistible. And I was at a beautiful conference in, um, it actually, it was in North Carolina, the home of where those girls live. And they were singing in just a little small tent. There was hardly anybody there, just a small circle, maybe 10 people. And and I heard them from a distance. And it was like, it reminded me of that, um, that movie about Brother Where Art Thou or something, you know, where you're drawn down to the river. <laughs> they might have been singing that song, come down to the river. Anyway, I followed the sound of, the, of that music, this, it was angelic music. And there they were sitting singing, and I just, I could see who they were. I could see, I could just see that these women were amazing musicians. And I listened to them for that afternoon. It was the most important thing that happened to me at that gathering. I listened to them, and then I, at the end I walked up and said, I would love to bring you to the herbal conferences up north. And they stepped out of those conferences, you know, they just, they became adopted by the herbal community. And, uh, you know, we, though they're beloved by so many communities and everywhere they go, the herbal community kind of like treasures them. We kind of think of them as our musicians. So they, I love these two women because they not only bring incredible music, and music is transformative, you know, it lifts the spirit and out of the darkness and elevates us. But they also um, are, they bring a wisdom and a humbleness of soul that 
touches my soul deeply. And I think the audience of their souls that they sing to. I can listen to the song Medicine Woman without thinking of you. Oh, thank you. So I thank them for introducing me to, to your work. Thank and you. I guess that's what um, wonderful people do. They support each other's uh, gifts. And we, we give each other a platform for those gifts to, to thrive. So thank you for doing that. Thank for, you. For them. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> thank you for Appreciate having me. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. Mm-hmm.